The text this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hold on them, laid hands on them, and put them in hold until the next day, unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this word before us. We thank you for the spirit within us. We thank you for the spirit in our midst. I pray that this Holy Spirit would work this word into our hearts, our lives, our families. And I pray you do it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak this morning on resurrection authority. Because Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the words of the ancient prophets, all of them. In Acts 3.24, we're told that from Samuel on, all the prophets were talking about these days. All All the prophets were talking about the fulfillment that came crashing in upon us in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So, Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the words of the ancient prophets. He also did so in fulfillment of his own confident pronouncements that he would rise from the dead. That's in Matthew 20, 18, and 19, and other passages. The gospel of the resurrected Christ, therefore, has true authority. It is not simply a message that is true. It is a message that is authoritatively true. It is a message that is self-authenticating. It's not the thing that must be proven. It is itself the ultimate and most glorious proof. It is not the thing that must be proven. It is the thing that proves. Moreover, the preached message of the resurrection is not something to be placed under a microscope and then examined by us in order to be proven. Rather, the declared message itself is a continuation of that same initial proof that Jesus offered the world when he came back from the dead. The resurrection proves, and the preaching of the resurrection also proves. The resurrection proves, and the preaching, the teaching, the declaration of the resurrection proves. Well, how are we to relate this to our text? In the early chapters of Acts, the apostles and the early disciples had received the power of the Spirit poured out upon them at Pentecost. Remember, that happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the church body. Now remember that this Holy Spirit who is poured out upon them is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's Romans 8, 11. The Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, and this same Spirit is poured out on the body of Christ, on the body of God's people. So all this activity is all part of the same motion, as it were. As a result of this, as the result of Jesus living a perfect life, walking through uh, Palestine, casting out demons, living a perfect sinless life, running afoul of the authorities, getting crucified, being buried in the grave, coming back from the dead, ascending into heaven, and then pouring out his spirit on his people, all of this is part of the same motion. And as a result of this, all of Jerusalem was in a state of churn. All of Jerusalem was in an upheaval. Thousands were coming into the church 
3,000 on the first day alone. We're told that in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So 3,000 on the first day alone, and it didn't let up after that. On one of these early occasions, they were preaching Christ. This is in Acts 3. And in the course of that message, Peter said something really profound, something that goes down to the bedrock of all reality. He preached to the crowd that they were the culprits. They were the culprits and that they were the ones who killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. That's in Acts 3.15. Now notice, it. look at the the back and forth juxtaposition. He said, right before the section I'm quoting, he says, you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, you asked for a murderer, you killed the prince of life whom God raised. All right, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You called for a murderer, we want the murderer, and then you killed, life itself appeared in, in your midst, and you killed him, but it turns out he was the prince of life, and because he's the prince of life, God raised him from the dead. And he says, whereof we are witnesses. We saw this. We are telling you about it authoritatively. We are declaring, we are testifying. Now, one might ask how the Prince of Life could ever be killed. How can the Prince of Life be killed? Talk sense, right? But apparently the real question should be how the Prince of Life could possibly remain dead. The the real issue is how could the Prince of Life actually conquer death unless he went all the way into it? How could he conquer death unless he was dead? If he just walked up to the edge of death and then pushed it over, that's not conquering death. The prince of life was murdered. The prince of life was tried and executed. The prince of life was dead for three days. And in that condition, he conquers death. He comes back from the dead. Now, this obviously causes consternation to the people who are running the show and who want to keep things tidy. So this is all going on. The authorities stepped in with an attempt to regain control of the situation, and that's where our text begins. The authorities step in because they want to regain control of the situation. If they wanted to keep control of the situation, they shouldn't have crucified the Messiah. They should have thought, they should have thought this through earlier. If the rulers of this age had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they still want, they, they, they're chasing it down the road. They want to get ahead of it again. They were deeply pained that the apostles were teaching the people and were preaching through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse 2. They're preaching through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, keep in mind that the Jews generally, with the exception of the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of their time, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels and spirits. Apart from the liberal Sadducees, the Jews generally were firmly convinced of the, of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, which they had inherited from the Old Testament. You're, you will often be told that the resurrection of the dead is not taught in the Old Testament or not taught clearly in the Old Testament. Don't believe it because Jesus argues for the resurrection from the verb tenses in Genesis. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the, the God of Jacob. And he rebukes them for not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Right, so Jesus says, you don't know your Bibles. If you knew your Bibles, you would believe in the resurrection of the dead. Martha, when, when Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, uh, Martha says, I know, I know he'll be raised at the last day. Pious Jews, Sadducees accepted, pious Jews knew that at the end of history, the resurrection was going to happen. They knew that the dead were going to be raised at the end of history. 
these followers of Christ were preaching that this doctrine that everybody held to had just been accomplished through Jesus. The end of the world had broken out into the middle of history through Jesus. The end of times had erupted like a volcano in the middle of history. The end of history had erupted in the middle of history. So the authorities had a situation. (laughs) What are you going to do? If you're the sheriff, if you're the mayor, if you're the governor, what are you going to do if the end of the world erupts in the middle of your administration? (laughs) You're going to panic. That's what you're going to do. So you're going to send some officers out to arrest these men. And so they put their hands on them, put them in custody until the next day because it was getting late. That's verse 3. But even though the preachers were hauled off, many still believed. Many still believed. Believed what? They believed in the resurrection of the dead through Jesus. They believed that the end of the world had happened in the middle of the world, in the middle of history, through Jesus. That's what they believed. Also note that uh, they could haul the preachers off, which they did. They hauled the preachers off, but the revival kept going. They hauled the preachers off, but the Reformation was afoot. You you can take the preacher, you can grab the preacher, and you can go throw him in jail, but you can't arrest the Holy Spirit. You can't put him in shackles. You can't take him to a, a, a trial in the middle of the night like they did with Jesus. You can't do it. The Holy Spirit is loose in the world. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then poured that spirit out onto the world. So, the number of men, it says in verse 4, the number of men in the church by this point was about 5,000. So we know 3,000 people the first day, 5,000 men here in verse 4, which means that the whole church was well likely over 10,000 in just a matter of days. So, the church was exploding. The church was exploding. And then the next day, when Peter's explaining how the cripple was made whole, he does it by naming Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That's in verse 10. Peter simply declares it as an accomplished fact. He simply declares it. He doesn't go out into the world to argue about it. He goes out to announce it. It's, he, uh, preachers of the gospel are heralds. They go out and they do, hear ye, hear ye. This is what the king says. How do I know he's the king? He's to the right hand of the father. How do I know he's there? He rose from the dead. This is our vindication. This is our testimony. This is our witness. Now, God is kind to us, and God is kind to us in our frailties, and he's kind to us in our weakness. But don't assume that that kindness, that condescension to us in our frailty and weakness is the standard way we ought to be operating. What do I mean he's kind to us? Well, Christ was truly kind to his disciples after the resurrection. In one place, it says that they disbelieved on account of their joy. That's in Luke 24, 41. So we have that expression, I, I, I can't believe it. Uh, you, you're, you do believe it, but you can't believe it because you can't get your head around how good this is. They disbelieved on account of their joy. Jesus condescended to invite Thomas to put his finger in the wound in his side. That's in John 20, 27. Now that should be considered a proof, right? That should be considered a proof. Thomas, come here. Come here. I want you to see. Here, take, take your hand and put your finger in the wound. Uh, there's a spear wound in my side, nail prints in my hands. I want you to touch. I want you to see. So, that's a proof. And then we find this in the opening verses of Acts. In Acts 1-3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, 
being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Jesus bends, Jesus accommodates, Jesus proves that they're saying, Jesus, is this really you? Are you a ghost? No, I'm not a ghost. He eats some fish and some honeycomb. He, he eats um, something to show I'm not a ghost. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone the way you see I have. So he, ha- he shows them many infallible proofs. But that was all of that was Christ's condescension and kindness. Remember in the passage that was just read to us this morning in the scripture reading, John, the apostle, when he goes into the tomb and he looks at the empty grave clothes, before John has seen the risen Christ, it says, and he believed. John's, John is the first Christian, I think. John is the first one to say, oh, it all clicks. It all comes together. Jesus rose. All of this was Christ's condescension and kindness. Remember what he said to Thomas. This is in John 20, 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. And that was good that Thomas believed. It was good that Thomas didn't continue on in disbelief. It was good that he did that, right? But Jesus goes on and he says, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you've seen me and you've believed. Well done. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about you and you and you and you and you. You've not seen. You've not seen what Thomas saw. You've not been invited to touch the wound in his side the way Thomas was invited. And yet, you have been referred to by the Lord Jesus here, and Jesus is pronouncing on you a greater blessing than what Thomas had. It is not the case that Thomas had the best of it. It's not the case that Thomas had a seat on the 50-yard line being able to watch all this, and, and boy, those were, the, those were the special ones. Um, it's true, obviously, that the apostles are special emissaries and messengers of this truth, but it's, it's not the case that we are out on the perimeter of the crowd, out on the edges of a crowd of hundreds of millions of people craning our necks to get a, a glimpse of it. That's not how this works. So it's not the case that Thomas had the best of it when it comes to evidence. That's what I mean. Thomas was forgiven just like we are. Thomas was cleansed just like we are. Thomas had the best of it and he was saved just like we are. But he didn't have the best of it when it comes to evidence. He didn't have the best of it when it comes to evidence. How so? It's not the case that he had all the epistemic certainty you could hope for, but we, two millennia later, have to walk across that lake on thin ice. That's not the way it works. That's not what we're dealing with. No, we are under the express blessing of Christ. What does he say? Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. We are under the express blessing of Christ. We have not seen and we have believed. But although we have not seen, what do we have? Well, we've heard. We've not seen, but we have heard. What have you heard? You've heard the gospel. And when you hear the gospel, you hear someone proclaim, he is risen. And you respond, he is risen indeed. We have heard, which is the best of all. After all, he is the word made flesh. That's what we're told in John 1.14. He is the word incarnate. He is the word made flesh. And so, the logos, the word, is the one we have heard. Hearing about the resurrection, when it is preached, is not the tail end of 2,000 years of playing the telephone game. That's not, that's not what this is. It's not like the apostle said, he's risen, and then someone, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. And then 2,000 years later, you say, what? 
That's not the way this is. It's not like, it's not, not liking, uh, it's not like making multiple copies on a Xerox machine where every copy gets smudgier and smudgier. That's not how the pro- this proclamation works. No, the Spirit inhabits. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who inhabits the preaching of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God is a person, and he is present here now. He is as present as he was when Jesus came from the grave. The Spirit inhabits the preaching of the resurrection. And so when, the, when Christ risen is preached, the work of resurrection is ongoing and continuing. The risen Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the power. The risen Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the power. That's in Matthew 26, 64, Mark 14, 62, Luke 22, 69. And what has he poured out upon us? Well, he's poured out the spirit of that same power. All right? he's, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of power. And then the spirit of Christ is the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ is poured out on his people, on the followers of Jesus. That's what makes him. That's what makes us his people. His spirit is poured out on us. Well, it's the spirit of the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power, he said, when the spirit is poured out on you. This is the anointing. This is the anointing. And the presence of the Spirit on that first resurrection morning is not something that degrades over time. It's not something that vanishes. It's not something that gets fainter and fainter and fainter. No, the symphony that God is conducting is building to a crescendo. It's not, going, it's not getting fainter and fainter. It's going the other direction. So, I said earlier that this message of resurrection power is the proof. How do, let me give you a couple examples of that. How do we know that Jesus will judge the whole world? We know because God raised him up. The resurrection here is the proof. It is the evidence. In Acts 17, verse 31, it says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. If I tell you that Jesus is the one who's going to divide the sheep from the goats, Jesus is the one who's going to sit on the great white throne and he's going to judge the nations of men. All, every parliament, every congress, every court, every king, every emperor, every president is going to be assembled before him and is going to give an account. How do we know that that's true? How do we know that he is going to be in that position? God has given assurance unto all men. To whom has he given this assurance? To whom has he given this proof? He's given this assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead in this world, which means that he is the king of this world. Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord because he rose. Here's another way of considering it. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. And what is it that cinches that declaration? It's, again, it's the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, there is that word again, with power. He's declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? The Spirit raised him from the dead. That's how we know. 
The resurrection is not the thing to be proven. The resurrection is the proof. The resurrection is the proof. And it's not the resurrection 2,000 years ago that is the proof. It is the resurrection that began at that point and has been ongoing since that time down to the present and is present here this morning with us. The Lord Jesus came back to life after he'd been killed. But we have to note the context. In what kind of world was he killed? In what kind of world was he killed? He was killed in a world of death. He was killed in a world governed by death. He was in a world that was encompassed by death. He came to life again after having been killed in a world governed by death. In 1 John 5, 19, in the ESV it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world at that time was under a blanket of wickedness. It was under a blanket of self-righteousness and self-centeredness and accusation. It was under a blanket of sin and wickedness. Jesus came back from the dead in that world. It was a world ruled by death, Hebrews 2.15. So the resurrection was like sticking a piece of dried paper into the fire, sticking the corner of the paper into the fire, and setting the corner of that sheet on fire. You watch it glow at first, and then it catches, and then it starts to spread. As it spreads across the entire sheet of paper, please remember, it's the same fire. It's the same fire. It's not one thing over here, and then, okay, let's forget all that, and let's go for a few centuries, and then let's have God do something else. It's not something else at all. It's the same action. It's the same motion. It's the same salvation. It's all the same fire. In Romans 6, 4, Paul says this, Therefore we are buried, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice that even so. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What does the even so mean? It means that we walk in newness of life by what? By the glory of the Father. Who is the glory of the Father? The Spirit is the glory of the Father, and the Spirit is here present with us. The Spirit is not 100% present when Jesus rose and only 25% present here. The Spirit is God. He fills every place. He is present All the time. He is with us now. Not only is he with us in his omnipresence, but he is with us covenantally. The Holy Spirit is with us because we are his people. We are sealed by that spirit. So you're baptized and Jesus was was crucified, buried, rose from the dead. And the spirit is the one who did that. Even so, in the same way, we should walk in newness of life. So when the resurrection is preached... When the resurrection is preached and his people come to life under the hearing of it, it's the same life that brought Jesus out from the grave again. It's the same life. Not a different life, but the same life. Not a different power, but the same power. Not a different spirit, but the same spirit. This is all one sweet motion. God is saving the world. He began to save the world in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that has been continuing down to the present. There has not been a moment since that time where God has not been converting people, where God has not been forgiving people, washing them clean, where God has not been regenerating them by his Holy Spirit. Not a different power, same power. Not a different life, same life. All of it is the same. The Christ 
has been raised, and we know that he's been raised because he's here with us now. In us, under us, above us. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. And you say, if someone says, well, I don't believe, I, I want to treat the resurrection like it's a simple datum of history, like the Battle of Waterloo, or the, the Battle of Gettysburg, or the, you know, the, the crowning of King Alfred. You know, let's take a historical event and let's treat the resurrection like it's that historical event. No, it's not that, it's not that kind of event at all. It's like the earthquake began, and the earthquake is ongoing. The fire started, the fire was kindled, and the fire's burning right in front of you. And if you don't want to believe, you can shut your eyes, you can deny it, and, and the stubborn and hard-hearted will, in fact, deny it. In the passage we heard read in the scripture reading this morning, uh, people are taunting Jesus on the cross, right? Come, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the Good Friday service, they're taunting Jesus on the cross, Come down and we'll believe. Come, come down from there and we'll believe. The answer to that is, no, you won't. No, you won't. You won't believe unless the Holy Spirit gives you faith. You won't believe unless the Holy Spirit, unless you catch fire in accordance with this Spirit. But if, if you believe, it's because the Spirit, has, has, the, the Spirit is doing what he has been doing for the last 2,000 years. We want to say, think of it this way. In, um, in Luke 16, Jesus tells the uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man dressed in sumptuous, uh, he, he was dressed in purple and fine linen. It says at the beginning, and, and it's interesting that, that those were the, that's how the high priest's robes are described back in the Old Testament, purple and fine linen. And then the rich man dies and goes to, he's in Hades, and he wants a drop of water to cool his tongue, and it's denied him. And he says, well, send someone to tell my brothers, tell, to warn my brothers. And um, it's quite interesting that the, the high priest dressed like that. The high priest's family was very, very wealthy. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest at Christ's trial, was famous for having five brothers, Right? He had five brothers, and everybody knew that he had five brothers because a number of them had been high priests also. They were the ruling family. Jesus is telling a very pointed... Uh, this is, this is a, a story with a pointy end. And, and so they, they're saying, well, uh, if someone comes back from the dead, if someone comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. And the answer to that is, apart from the Spirit's work, unless the Spirit is at work, no, they won't. Remember, and this is the other thing, is uh, the parable of Lazarus is the only parable that Jesus ever tells where there's a proper name. All right, Lazarus is the only, it's always a certain man does this and uh, um, sower went out to sow a seed and that sort of thing. This is the one parable where there's a proper name. And then in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what happens when he raises Lazarus from the dead? There's a bunch of Jewish leaders Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. A bunch of Jewish leaders come out from Jerusalem. Martha, Mary, and, John, uh, and Lazarus are well-connected people. So some, some of the leadership of the Jews came out from Jerusalem, and they were standing there when Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus was put in the grave. And Jesus tells them to roll the stone away. And, and they say, are you sure? He's, he's begin, begun to decompose, and I'm... I'm sure. So they roll the stone away, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes hopping out, and he tells them to unwind him. Very nice thing to do. Un unwind him. And so Lazarus 
I just imagine being st- uh, one of the people in Bethany standing on the side of the street when Lazarus is going back home to get from the cemetery to get a bite to eat, and you were all at the funeral four days before. So Lazarus goes back, look, he goes back, and he rejoins his family. Now, do you think that the crowd who was standing there at the tomb when Jesus did that, do you think that Jesus persuaded 100% of them? No. No. He won, but many of them, it says many of them believed. Many of them believed? Jesus raised someone from the dead, resurrected someone from the dead, resuscitated him after four days in the grave, and many of them believed? What did the others do? They went back to Jerusalem to plot against Jesus. We have to do something about this guy. We have to do something. If we don't do something about this guy, this is going to get completely out of control, which is, of course, exactly what it did. They didn't do anything about him. Well, they thought they did. They killed him. They killed the prince of life. That, you know, that, that takes care of it. No, it didn't. Three days later, Jesus comes from the grave. And he comes from the grave in the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit is talking to you right now. That same spirit is at work in you right now. That same spirit is the one, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, that same spirit is the one quickening you to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life is is resurrection newness. It's resurrection authority. It's resurrection life. And that means when you're talking to an unbeliever about the new life in Christ, And they say, no, 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 I don't believe it. They're in the same position that the people who walked away from Lazarus' grave, unconvinced. They're in the same position. Why? Because they're looking straight at resurrection life. They're looking straight at the power of the Holy Spirit. They're looking straight at what he's done for you. He's forgiven your sins. He's put your marriage back together. He's straightened your life out. He's straightened all the kinks out of your hose. He's he's done all of these things. And, And there are people who knew you before. And they said, no, 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 You're just, you've just become a Jesus freak, that's all. No, that's not what it is. This is the power of God. Same life, same power, same authority, same spirit. So, Christ has been raised, and we know that he's been raised because he's here with us now. He's here with us now in the person of his spirit. He's here with us now in us and under us and above us. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Our gracious God and Father, we're so grateful for your kindness to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for what you've done for us and in us. We thank you for this resurrection power. We thank you for this gift that none of us deserved. Father, we commit it all to you. And as we do it, we would repeat back to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, One of the interesting things, one of the interesting details in the resurrection accounts in the gospels is the fact that Jesus ate food after his resurrection. Jesus made breakfast by the sea and ate with his disciples bread and fish he cooked over some coals. When the disciples were still having a hard time believing it was really him, he asked for some food and they gave him fish and a honeycomb to eat. He was made known to a couple of disciples when he broke bread and ate with them. What's interesting is that while Jesus had a real human body, we also know that it was a human body that could not die again, which means that Jesus didn't need food to stay alive anymore. This actually relates to many of the pictures of salvation in heaven, which frequently include food. For example, God promises to make a great feast on a mountain full of fat things and well-refined wines, and that feast comes as a result of God swallowing up death and victory and wiping away every tear, Isaiah 25, 6-8. And in Revelation, 
John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband for the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9 and 21 verse 2. And there are trees of life in that heavenly vision yielding fruit every month. And you know, that fruit's for eating. So just as Jesus ate after his resurrection, we too will eat when we are raised from the dead. Our new glorified bodies will not need food to stay alive like we do now, but we will still enjoy food in the resurrection, just like Jesus, which indicates that food has always been more than just keeping us alive. In fact, remember in the Garden of Eden, there wasn't any death yet, and yet we know it was full of food for eating. So, what's food for? At least two things. Food is for our enjoyment. It's good. And God made it for us to enjoy. And that leads directly to the second thing. The best things in this world are enjoyed with others. Hey, taste this. Try this. Have you tried this? God made food for us to enjoy with him and one another so that we might know God and know one another and so be in fellowship with him and one another. And the food at this table proclaims the same thing. It proclaims that all your sins are forgiven and therefore you are welcome to enjoy these good gifts and all his good gifts. No guilt, no shame, no regrets, no fear. Just come, come and welcome. Christ is risen, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in making this world, making us in your image. Thank you for Jesus, who has made us right with you. Thank you that our sins are washed away and that you've clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for inviting us to this table. Thank you, Father, for our families that we're sitting with. Thank you for our wife, our husband, our parents, our kids, our brothers and sisters, our roommates. Father, thank you for this community that you are knitting us together in. Thank you for your spirit. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. One way to think about what you've just heard this morning is ask yourself the question, how did you first believe? How did you believe? How did you first? How did you get that new heart? And there are little things you can point to. But if you think about it long and hard enough, long and hard enough you realize, I can't explain it. I don't know. Right? It's a little bit like asking Lazarus, how did you come back from the dead? I don't know. There was nothing, and then I was hungry, and it was dark. <laughs> right? Right? Whether you came to faith when was a little, as a little kid and you can't remember the moment you first believed, or you know it was dark, and then the light was on, and I was a Christian, and I believed, it was God. He saved you. It was the Holy Spirit who saved you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raised you to this new life. That's what you're enjoying today, and that's what you're going to go out and enjoy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever, and amen.